0: April 28th, 2021. It's about six ten p.m. We're a little late. Sorry about that. Technical difficulties. Um, you are now visiting our Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association Facebook page, and this is a special edition of Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA. We will be copying this and putting it on YouTube and on our podcast platform in the coming days. Today, I am joined by Dr. Nick Spadira and Dr. Doug Johnston of the Cleveland Clinic. Many of you know Nick Smedeira. He is a heart surgeon and he performs myectomies about 220 per year uh, out of the Cleveland Clinic. And he's getting a little uh, overworked. So he's brought in some reinforcements. So um, without further ado, Nick, why don't you tell us what's going on at the clinic and then introduce us to your colleague.
1: Well, thanks, Lisa. You do this really well. I mean, you, you've got this this down, you've got sort of that riff, rhythmic, sing-songy voice, Can you, you do it really well. Well, hello, everyone, and, and welcome. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here uh, with Lisa and my, my good friend and colleague, Doug Johnston. Uh, I think, as you, most of you know, the, the, the Cleveland Clinic has been Involved with and a a pioneer in the field of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and the the surgery for hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy for oh more than the time I've been there I've been at the clinic twenty seven years and Dr Lytle and Dr Lever have really been the pioneers and I learned a great deal from them and. You know, Doug has been at the clinic. Doug, how many years have you been there exactly? I'll get it wrong. How many years?
2: Uh, It's uh, 16 years.
1: Is that including your training?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I came in 2005.
1: So Doug Doug was one of our trainees. And we saw right away that that Doug had immense talent and and had Doug uh, join us and has been with us on staff. And I would think he is one of the most accomplished and technically expert surgeons that I've had the pleasure of working with. And Doug and I talked about doing myectomies together a handful of years ago. And what another colleague of ours came and and joined us, Per Weirup, another accomplished surgeon from Sweden. And he has gone back to uh, Sweden For to pursue a number of different things, so I've asked Doug to join me uh, uh, in the myectomy practice. Doug has a number of areas of expertise that complement the treatment of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. He's he's a world expert in 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 the management of the aortic valve and the aorta that is just above the area where the obstruction is for in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So his knowledge of the anatomic structures right in what we call the outflow tract and just beyond are are unsurpassed. So his knowledge base and his skill set and his experience complement very well what I've been doing. And Doug has become a pioneer in a lot of different techniques for minimally invasive aortic valve replacement surgery. He does it through a absolutely minuscule incision on the side of the chest. Um, And so having Doug on board, I think is going to be an absolute asset and compliment um, to our team and and, and actually um, really helped me because I I haven't done as much work in the aortic uh, position, but we do see patients who have a combination of the thick muscle and aortic pathology. And I think it's going to work quite well. So I'll let Doug share a little bit about himself and then his interest in cardiac surgery. He just has some other areas of expertise he may want to share. Doug?
2: Well, thanks a lot. Nick's been incredibly kind. And, you know, I was fortunate to get to train with Nick as a trainee at the clinic and and with Bruce Lytle as well. And I, I really got exposed to myectomy for the first time, um, the first time I had a chance to be at the clinic and having, I did my general surgery training in Boston at the Mass General, spent a lot of time with the cardiac surgeons there, very great group. And in, in, the, in the seven years I was there, I saw one myectomy. And when I came to the clinic and talked with, with Bruce and with Nick, and you know at the time, I think the volume was between 80 and 100 and realized the depth of experience actually in, in this disease process, which is so different from a lot of what we treat, it was actually one of the reasons why I chose to come to the clinic to train. And, uh, you know, we all get pulled in a number of different directions early in our careers. And, uh, you know, I I did lung transplants for a number of years and and a number of other areas of cardiac surgery, um, but really developed uh, an interest in in the alpha tract and the root and the ascending aorta, which um, has been a focus of a lot of my research. And I've always had, uh, an ongoing interest in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, Harry Lover and I uh, work together very well. And, and uh, while my volume is nothing like Nick's, I did a, a, a number of myectomies over the years. Uh, but as we've reorganized ourselves into these centers, it, it really makes sense to have somebody who spends a lot of time on this. And, and we, you know, we want to be experts at what we do. The other area that I've spent a lot of my career focused on is pericardial disease, which ironically is another of Bruce Lytle's passions. And and so that's kind of uh, ended up in my lap. And, And while they're very different diseases, what's unique about the two of them is that they're pretty rare compared to the bread and butter cardiac surgery that a lot of surgeons get exposed to. Many patients are misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed. And it's not only doing really good surgery, but it's dealing with the physiology after surgery and the issues with diastolic dysfunction and management of fluid and, and trying to return patients to a normal lifestyle that are critical. So, you know, there, there are overlaps there that, that are really interesting to me. Um, I will say that from the first myectomies that I saw as a resident, what's changed the most in our practice is the management of these complex interactions between the mitral valve and the, and the outflow tract. And that is really where Nick has pioneered, you know, a whole new field of surgery. It's, you know, managing patients with um, relatively normal septal anatomy and abnormal papillary muscles, something that didn't exist, you know, when I was a trainee was really in its infancy. And so that is really exciting and it's an area I think we can continue to iterate and, and learn how the imaging can help us going forward. So, you know, I am uh, really excited to be a part of this team and I really appreciate the, all the hard work and, and collaboration and advocacy that Lisa's done over many years to, to raise awareness for this, uh, you know, a disease that we all know that people still get missed. And, uh, and I think huge opportunity, you know, for all of us who are interested in this field to continue to, to make sure that people are adequately assessed and diagnosed and don't get treated inappropriately and uh, at least get the opportunity to consider some of the techniques that we can bring to bear.
0: Well, that was a really great overview and the messages are running in from previous patients who are waving emphatically and saying, hi, thank you. We'll go through some of those in a few minutes. So you brought up somebody else into the equation who's not here tonight with us, and that's Bruce Lytle. And when I first started working with Harry Lever, Bruce was doing the majority of the myectomies and this young guy, Nick, was just kind of coming up and getting started going on these things. And then I think we made you a little too busy. So Bruce handed them off to you. Um, I remember coming out in what was like 2000 or so and uh, watching a myectomy, um, thought it was going to be a completely different experience, it was ultra cool. And if I had my life to live again and didn't have HCM, I'd probably want to be a cardiac surgeon because what you guys do is amazing. Um, Nick, do you remember what song was playing when I realized that there was music playing because I was so engrossed in what was going on?
1: I don't. What, what was it?
0: A little twisted here. Blue Oyster Cult, Don't Fear the Reaper oh
1: wow well <laughs> i had to check my playlist that morning so
0: i just started laughing and you're like what's so funny i'm like a song <laughs> and it was it was and i didn't fear and she did really well the patient that you were working on that day she did really well so have you guys like divvied up who's going to be doing what type of anatomy is it just um what patient comes up next who's going to be deciding where these patients get um, positioned for their surgery? Or how's that going to work?
1: We, we haven't formally set, you know, a, uh, a program yet. The, uh, I have a puppy, so you might hear some barking and some some banging on the door. But, uh, um, you know, the, the, the patients are really just starting to come back in after the, the COVID hiatus. And the volume to fill my schedule is just really starting to, to get to the point where Doug and I will sit down and start um, dividing up the cases. My sense of the matter is what we'll do is we'll work together on the cases. As, as the, the cases come in and the scheduling permits, we'll, we'll partner as we did earlier and do cases together Um, sharing experience and knowledge. Uh, There's not much that Doug can't do, so we'll just be sort of working side by side. We've done that quite a bit at the clinic when it it comes to other operations like mitral valve repairs, robotic mitral valve repairs, complex multivalve endocarditis cases, where we have a couple surgeons scrub together One, because they can be challenging cases. Two, you just share the expertise and and help each other like pilot and co-pilot at any given moment.
2: I think one of the great things about the fact that we have this sort of collaborative uh, approach around disease processes and centers is, you know, we have a standard approach to imaging, obviously, and, and we can sit down in our office and, and. Uh, look at all of the, you know, the MRI images, et cetera, especially in these more complicated patients where we're li- really looking at the anatomy of the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve, and you know where we can. The imaging fidelity is good enough now where we can do a lot of pre-planning of, you know, what's the strategy here going to be, what's the target if the papillary muscles need to be moved, and those things, and you know what's the relative contribution of the valve and the septum. Which is, you know, all thought process that I learned from Nick and from Harry and now from Melinda. Tsai that, you know, we we have a lot of tools at our disposal to know the direction we're going to go before the OR. And, um, you know, Lisa, you brought up a great point about some of the nuances here. I mean, I, I'm very comfortable with, you know, a uh, uh, myectomy. I, I would never use the word straightforward because it's not a straightforward disease. But a a patient who has an isolated septal bulge and, and needs a certain amount resected. Um, that's an operation I've done quite a bit of, and both alone and in combination with aortic valve surgery. Um, but there are lots of nuances there. And that's where having somebody with Nick's tremendous expertise to say, yeah, let's take a little more here or there, let's get deeper into the ventricle, let's re, you know, and, and in those situations where we're reassessing a patient based on the post-op echo, where we challenge um, the gradient and make sure that we really have done an adequate job, that having two sets of eyes is invaluable. And I think it's a you know, it's the right thing to do. It's a great service to the patients. And we're you know, fortunate to have the ability to do that.
0: So I have to answer the question that has been attacking my email since the notice of this meeting came up. Um, Nick, are you going anywhere anytime soon?
1: Oh, I wish I could go somewhere soon. COVID, it's been such a lockdown. I, I think, I, I'm not sure what the genesis of the question, but I just got back from Florida Uh, Sunday night. I was down there for a week. Uh, The first time I operated, I did four myectomies, one with a maze procedure for atrial fibrillation. And I look back, the last time I was down there was in September of 19. And the plan was to go down once a quarter. Uh, There's a couple of things I've been thinking about, about Florida. One I recognize, I think, as you have, in developing centers of excellence, is that it can be challenging, and expensive, and disruptive for patients to travel great distances, and uh, especially like in a Cleveland winter, trying to fly fly into Cleveland and stay in a hotel and get back and forth. So we have a great hospital in Weston, and we're expanding it throughout southern hospitals throughout southern Florida, and so. I've had, I've had privileges, I've been licensed in, in Florida for over a decade, do, uh, helping them do heart transplants. So I thought I'd s- explore the option of, can I go down there and operate safely and uh, serve the patients in Florida? And it's been a really rewarding experience. Um, the, uh, the, the patients really appreciate, I saw a patient when I was down there who who is young and he wants to, to he needs to have surgery. But the, the discussion between him and his wife was, well, we have four young children, you know, what are we going to do if we go to Cleveland? Maybe we can wait till Dr. Smidier comes down again. So the long, short answer is there's no plans to go anywhere anytime soon, but we are planning uh, maybe a return visit to Florida in July or August or maybe September, depending on if there's patients awaiting surgery, to serve the patients there.
0: So, yes, you're going someplace, but you're coming back to Cleveland, and Doug isn't taking over for you. You're going to get a partner in crime so that you can share these surgeries and continue to train forward. I think the population here is very comforted to know Doug didn't just show up from some other center last week and we're like popping him into a complex myectomies. His career is at Cleveland Clinic. He's done these procedures before. You and Bruce have trained him, and he brings his own expertise as well that he's developed over time. So I think in this series, we're doing three of these series, meeting new faces of surgery. Um, Maya will be introducing some, Tufts will be introducing one. So there's gonna be some new names out there. And we wanted to make sure patients understood who these people were and why it is critically important to go to a high volume surgeon. And I'm gonna ask you guys to talk a little bit about some of what I spend most of my time talking about is why high volume care for myectomy matters can you explain how small of an opening you're operating through and how complex it is to understand this very unique anatomy and why expertise and high volume really matters there? Who wants to start?
1: I'll give it a quick go. And and, uh, the thing that I think is just phenomenally interesting, but what makes it phenomenally challenging is the septal anatomy has innumerable uh, variations to its configuration where the hypertrophy is and, and what part of the septum we, we differentiate it from the base to the middle to the apex and you can separate it from right to left um, so there's innumerable variations in where the thickness occurs and then you add on top of that that the Um, thickness varies, not only from patient to patient, but in each of those areas. So the surgeon needs to have a really good three-dimensional understanding from really high quality imaging studies and be able to translate that into the operation they do through a very, very small opening in the aorta, which I'm trying to think of something that would be, um, I mean, it's smaller. What's a I good call
0: it a garden it, hose. it's like looking down a garden hose
1: yeah it's a little bigger than that it's not the size of a cucumber but you know something between a garden hose and a cucumber and and you have to look through that inside the chamber of the heart with vital structures uh, all in the neighborhood of where you're cutting um you have to get it you know it's like the gold goldilocks thing it, it can't be too thin and it can't be left too thick. it just it has to be just right. Doug, any, any thoughts on uh, additional things that you've experienced that make it more technically challenging
2: some, that, than some of the other routine stuff we do? I think, I think the aspect of, of the visualization and the, the maneuvers that you have to make to see the septum better. I mean, it's easy to cut out a little chunk and go, "Oh, that looks better." But that's but better is not good enough. I mean, we want to have something that really is is optimal and that that is not doesn't just look good under the perfect conditions, but when the patient's exercising or dehydrated, that you know we really have a great result. I, I think the other piece of it is um, it's it's high volume surgeon and and center, meaning that you know I had the experience. A, a guy that I met at a meeting uh, said, "I've got this." funny patient, it's not, this doesn't look like the average myectomy. There's something going on with the valve and my cardiologist told me the papillary muscle's abnormal. I said, great, send me the image, I'll look at it. And then he sent me the MRI and on no MRI images did it show the papillary muscles. So I said, well, this is the issue that it's gonna be hard to even plan that because the way that your imaging team has put this together is not friendly to myectomy. They're looking at something else entirely. And that's where having this team together where when we look at a patient for, um, a complex repair, especially with, with HCM, that the every aspect of it is gonna be really well done. The echo we get is specifically designed to look at these issues. Um, the echo team knows how to safely challenge a patient to uh, to elicit the gradient. And that the MRI we get is gonna, I mean, we pull it up and the first set of images is gonna be the papillary muscle and the interaction with the mitral valve. So the whole setup is just so friendly to the surgeon who is then gonna be in that position as Nick said, of looking down this long tunnel and making decisions about the septum and the valve and the interaction between those. So I think that having a whole team that just does this all the time makes the whole process smoother. And, and I think also gives patients confidence that it's not just the surgeon who knows what they're doing, that when they go to see the cardiologist or even go to have the imaging done that the team goes, oh yeah, you're here for this, that great.
0: So I'm going to tell you a little funny story. We, we received a new application recently from a new center um, and their surgeon was very quick to let us know that he trained with Glenn Morrow. And I was wondering, I have not spoken to him yet. I'm wondering how his education has evolved since Morrow. And I would like you guys to touch on early myectomy and what was done and how it has evolved today in high volume programming to do more than just a trough.
1: Well, you know, it was, it's a great history. Uh, it'd be worth a, a podcast because the, the initial approach back in the 60s, when, when the heart lung machine was just in its infancy was the surgeons would put a thimble on their finger. And on the end of the thimble was a, a knife blade. And they would stick their finger in the aorta and into the septum and on the tip of it blindly, they would use the, their finger, their index finger, and they would just sort of curl it up in the septum and they would create a blind linear cut. And then they would take the thimble off and they'd stick there. This sounds kind of gross, but this is what they did. They stick their finger in there, and then they would fracture that line that they made to crack open the muscle. They called it a sphincterotomy, Um, and that, (laughs) I mean, it was really primitive. They didn't have the imaging studies like we had. Echocardiography hadn't been invented. You know, everything had to be done by auscultation and maybe an angiogram, but it it was very primitive, and and credit to those surgeons, you know, boldly trying to to treat that, the problem. But then uh, Dr. Morrow did the trough, and then Dr. Lytle and Dr. Schaff at the Mayo Clinic began, and, and, and Sirmak Diyak, to, to his credit in the UK, began to realize that the, 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 you had to extend the myectomy further into the the chamber and more broadly across the entire septum and taking that information then i expanded it even further in terms of the extent of which the myectomy needs to be done um, allowing the mitral valve and the muscle the septum to separate from each other so that's yeah that's what, 60 years of evolution as we began to understand better and better the pathophysiology of alpha tract obstruction.
0: And originally, we thought all HCM was obstructed HCM and that it was just this little bulge and you cut it out and it's done. And now we know about papillary muscles and mitral valve involvement and the need for mitral valve repairs in some cases. You guys don't do a lot of replacements, do you?
1: Um, no. And that was, it was a real interesting evolution there on the second half of the valve was when I was in training with Dr. Lytle, I remember having patients that had outflow tract obstruction, but they didn't have septal hypertrophy or didn't have much septal hypertrophy. And I, I would ask Bruce, I'd say, well, what do you think's going on? And and, and he was in a a really, uh, what should I say, inquisitive guy, and he, he studied everything, but he didn't know. And and as Doug suggested, he always gave us opportunities to think of things that nobody else has thought of. And, he, and I remember saying, well, well, maybe we should try and figure out why these folks are obstructing. And so I began sort of my interest in trying to say, well, if we don't have hypertrophy, why do we have obstruction? And the thing opposite the septum in the outflow tract is the mitral valve and the papillary muscles and it really didn't take a genius to say well maybe that's the problem because it's right there and we started to see patients the more we looked and that was one of the challenges lisa is if you have a symptomatic patient that comes to a doctor and they're sitting in their office perfectly comfortable and at rest and they do an echocardiogram they have an absolutely normal-looking heart. Somebody with hypertrophy, you can say, well, at least they have hypertrophy and maybe it would ring a bell. But for that person that was profoundly symptomatic, and, and, and an example would be a, a high school basketball player, division, who was uh, an All-American in high school, goes to a Division One college playing basketball on the varsity team as a freshman. By the end of the sophomore year, he can't walk from his... Uh, dorm to the classroom, and he's got profound outflow tract obstruction. He has no hypertrophy, but it, sitting at rest, he, there's no obstruction. So we, once we began to think about it, we, then we, we kind of did it in reverse. Then we get, began to look more for it, and then you begin to find it more as you stress the heart and people with uh, um, minimal or no hypertrophy, and it's a lot of this out there. Um, and it's an interesting research question. I mean, do they really have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Do they have a genetic disorder? Is it what is it? Is it is it just how the heart kind of came together in utero? So, tons of really interesting questions for us still to answer about why people develop alpha tract
2: obstruction. I'm going to pivot
0: this question for a minute for Doug. Why HCM? So many other things to do in the heart with surgery. What interested you about getting more involved with HCM surgery?
2: I think it's two, two pieces to that answer. One is the patient population. I mean, I really um, feel one of the things I've been interested in in every disease that I've studied is the optimal identification and timing of patients for surgery and the whole phenomenon of underdiagnosis. These people who um, on one end of the spectrum are patients who have a very well-defined disease an aortic stenosis, bicuspid valve. I see a lot of that, but many of those patients are told you don't need surgery, but you can't exercise. You can't lift, don't travel, you know, so their lifestyle is artificially limited by us, their physicians. And, and this happens certainly in, in hypertrophy patients as well. The other end of the spectrum are patients who are sick. They feel bad. They have things like the, the athlete that Nick described, but they are continually told, well, nothing's wrong. Your, your heart's fine, your echo's fine. And and there are a lot of parallels with the uh, pericardiectomy population where if you take a cursory look at the echo, the heart's squeezing just great, it just can't empty. And so I've, I've always been interested in this phenomenon of these diseases that are more than meets the eye. And I think HCM is one that has this additional complexity of... Uh, kind of two diverging pathways and some patients that overlap, the patients who have the primarily septal hypertrophy phenotype and these patients where it's abnormalities in the mitral valve that can very, be very anatomically complex. And as Nick was alluding to, it's the ability to try to figure out what are the components of that and can we make this more systematic? And I mean, I, I've learned you know, over the last decade from all the work that, that he's done say yeah we, we can simplify some aspects of this i mean you can look at it and say what are the components is the septum normal is the papillary muscle sticking right in the middle okay well that's an easy target is the anterior leaflet long is the tip of the anterior leaflet long and can we can we divide that into pieces of an operation that we can then make systematic and at the same time give people a quality outcome that is that is outstanding and that that's you know my other big push in in all the areas of cardiac surgery that I've worked in is how can we make operations um, something that can be done with ultimate safety for this population that's young and has a very long life expectancy. That's just a critical piece of what we do.
0: So I will ask you both this question because there is a variation of myectomy that is done over at Mayo and they do an apical approach to myectomy how do you guys get to the apex?
1: I'll, I could take that. And uh, yeah, you know, the Mayo, Mayo and Hartzell Schaff have, have done a great job really defining that, the apical myectomy. Um, I had this sense that you can get to the apex through the aorta. And one of the, the thing, uh, questions patient has when you do a myectomy, do you cut through the heart and then we share with them, no, we go through the aorta to get inside the chamber, but to do an apical my apical myectomy, the Mayo method, you have to cut through the a big incision through the anterior wall of the heart. So I, I thought, well, let's give it a shot and see if we can do it through the aorta and you can. The the thing that's necessary is you have to modify the instruments you use. And so you have to have uh, an extra long 15 blade. We, We have had our bioengineering department weld two 15 blade handles together so that the 15 blade is 40 centimeters. We have affectionately named it the spear. So I call for the spear. It is long, it is really long. And I, I have to tell the, the assistant to, to, to keep their left hand awake. Cause I mean, I'm trying to look inside and manage this spear. I also use the equipment that they use for sort of like laparoscopic or thoracoscopic, very long handled uh, forceps where you control the mechanism quite far away so I can get the forceps in this knife in there. And there's some other maneuvers to rotate the heart down, but I can do a complete mid-cavitary and apical myectomy almost in almost any patient um, through the aortic valve. And I just think it saves a big incision uh, through the heart, although it's doable that way. Like Doug was suggesting, you just need to have worked out the tricks and have a really good three dimensional understanding of the anatomy. And, and it's uh, uh, mid cavity and apicals can be done very easily through
2: a transaortic approach.
0: Any other thoughts on that, Doug?
2: Yeah, what I would say I mean, this is a uh, a super specialty of HCM surgery. And, you know, when you talk about Hartzell Schaff and, and Nix Madeira, yeah. these are the luminaries in the field who are dealing with the most difficult patients. I mean, they're definitely. Um, Complementary approaches. I, I, you know, I think that the idea of using uh, using instruments that are normally used for something else to make the procedure less invasive is incredibly appealing to me. I mean, that's why I do so many I do so many mini thoracotomy aortic valves because it's a way to um, reduce the impact of the incision by using technology. So using those long shafted instruments, I mean, that's something that I do every day. These are cases though, that are super complex. And these are ones that I'm gonna look forward to working together with Nick, because the expertise here is in the precise positioning of the heart. So looking down the tunnel, which is now even longer, as Nick said, 40 centimeters, that's, that's long. That's um, looking down a very long tunnel and then precisely shaving just the right amount of muscle all the way down to the apex. Um, that's an art. And uh, so that, that's something that is, uh, um, but doing, doing it that way in order to minimize the impact on the ventricle, I think has ultimate appeal to me.
0: So Doug, I'm going through some of the questions here. And Nick mentioned you have a specialty, specialty with um, aortic valves. So the question here is what if you have aortic valve regurgitation, mitral valve prolapse and obstructive HCM, how do you manage that?
2: So the the aortic valve is the most straightforward of those problems. So it really just depends what the the reason for the regurgitation is. Some of those valves are repairable. Some uh, don't have very good durability when they're repaired. So the best option is a replacement. The combination of mitral valve prolapse and HCM is challenging because using the standard techniques we use for mitral valve repair, where you essentially shrink the size of the mitral valve is going to push the anterior leaflet closer to the septum, which is usually what we don't want to do. So those are cases where we have to be really thoughtful about what we do to the mitral valve. We may want to pull the posterior leaflet down further than we normally would to get it out of the way, but that's where having a really uh, good view of the anatomy and MRI is super helpful there because it shows us um, not only the anatomy of the valves, but the physiology of them interacting in 3D, very complementary to ECHO, but a great planning tool for cases like this.
0: Thank you for that. I'm gonna pivot a little bit on questions. We have a comment, a question, and then a validation of something I was talking on our group about yesterday. So Richard, who you operated on a number of years ago, um, was a redo myectomy. He was a UCLA myectomy and they didn't take enough tissue. And then he came back to you for a second myectomy. Could you guys please talk about the need to try to do this one and done, and why he yells at everybody? Go to high volume centers. Um, so one and done is our, our our ultimate goal. But is there any other complications that can occur from a redo myectomy, and does the muscle grow back, or did they just not take enough to begin with?
1: Um. Yeah, one and done. Yeah. No. No. I, I I sort of hear you and feel your pain. Of course, we, we want, I think when Doug and I think about doing operations and we think as Doug suggested about valves and should you repair a valve? Is it durable or not? You, you make the decision because you really, we know patients don't want to come back and have a second heart operation or any operation per se. Um, you, you know, that's where the expertise comes. It, it you, you, you have to take enough to open up the outflow tract. And then you have to do what we call provocative testing in the operating room to document under high levels of heart activity that you you, you hit it out of the park. And what I've been critical in a lot of my editorials from manuscripts from other centers is when they say they have good results, I always ask, but did you provoke the heart and provoke means you we give a drug that's like adrenaline so to chemically make the heart really really work hard and that's what causes obstruction and only then, when you have that as maximally stressed we call it as you can can you say the operation is complete and successful it's 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 just a quick check on what you did and i'm not i'm not sure many centers do that or do it to the level they need to you have to take the right about right, right amount of uh, muscle. Uh, what were, what was the other part of the question? Uh,
0: I'm sorry. I scrolled through. Um, so does the heart muscle grow back or did they-
1: Yeah. My, my sense is once you reach maturity, you don't grow new heart muscle cells and it's my sense when I've operated on people who have had prior myectomies, it just wasn't an, an extensive enough resection. Typically, the trough is deep enough. They just
2: didn't extend the resection wide enough. Or good. deep enough into the ventricle.
0: Yeah. You're, you're, or deep
2: down. Longitudinally yeah. Yeah. into the ventricle, but definitely what we see that yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's an aggressive myectomy, but it's short. <laughs>
0: We've had a lot of questions, um, probably weekly it comes up. Will it grow back? Will it grow back? Will it grow back? And then no, it doesn't grow back unless they're a child and they're still developing. And then you're going to potentially see that. But we try to get them to full growth. We can't always get there. I spoke to somebody today who's got a 13-year-old with a 250-millimeter mercury gradient and a 3-centimeter septum. So that one might. Be done and we might do a redo at some point but that's because he's young is there an age cutoff for myectomy?
1: too young or too old, too old.
0: That, I think that was what they were looking for
1: no I don't think so I you know I mean Doug can speak to one of the common uh, ailments for the elderly are aortic valve stenosis and, and Doug I, I don't think they're do you have
2: any hesitation on operating on somebody over 90 or it's how healthy the patient is i mean you know this is not a situation where we have a great um transcatheter solution for a lot of patients i think age is it's it's overstating to say age is just a number i mean age does correlate with a lot of outcomes but we have people in their 80s who are you know, running daily and running businesses and, you know, these super active people. So I think it comes down much more to what the patient's overall health and comorbid, uh, comorbidity status is rather than age. So I would definitely wouldn't give it an absolute cutoff and it's very much of a moving target.
0: Well, I can tell you that we had a woman, one of my favorite phone calls, this woman tells me, I really want to get back to work full time and I'm getting frustrated because my myectomy was three years ago and I can only work three days a week. She sounded young and spry, and I'm trying to figure out how old she is. And she has one, tell me. And we had this very long conversation, and I asked her what she does for a living. She ran cancer symposiums for a very large hospital in New York City. I asked her how long she'd been doing that. She said, 42 years. And I started to do math, and I'm like, sweetheart, how old are you? And she says, I hate being judged by my age, but my next birthday, I'll be 95.
2: Wow! And I'm and, uh, like,
0: for... when I grow up.
2: <laughs> good so, for her. Yeah,
0: that was a couple of years ago. I I'm not sure what's going on right now, but I should reach back out to her. Barbara would like you to explain the process of getting ready for a myectomy. What imaging is done? Who makes the decision that it's time to meet a surgeon? And what if you think you want to meet a surgeon, but you haven't been referred yet?
2: You should always meet the surgeon. I mean, it's one thing I would say with everything that we do is, I talk to a lot of patients that don't need surgery now. I mean, you, you want to if you feel like you will be more confident about the future, even if you're not ready for surgery, yeah, you're ready for a surgical visit. I mean, you may want to hear about the risks and benefits, complications, the nuts and bolts of the operation and recovery. So um, that's that's on us to provide you the opportunity to to meet with somebody, whether it's in person or virtual. As early as is comfortable for you. That's my thought.
1: Yeah, I would agree. You know, we, we're all into this virtual stuff, and this is cool doing this uh, Zoom thing. But we went through all these headaches around the Zoom thing where it wouldn't connect, and now we said, "Oh, well, let's just do a phone call." And so, wow we we've looked at this technology, but sometimes just getting on the phone and just chatting with your surgeon and going through these questions and asking, yeah, we don't need all the data. It's sometimes it's helpful, obviously, to see imaging studies or have reports to help guide things. But Doug and I would be more than willing to say, we'll be happy to review your case. We're also fortunate at the, the Cleveland Clinic. We have a great set of teams that will help us get the information together for you, put it together for us so that when we do chat, we can, we can sh- share our thoughts about where, where you are in the, you know, in the course of the disease, what it looks like, what are the op- options for you?
0: So we have some interesting comments. So I got 2008 myectomy, 2014 myectomy, eight years ago myectomy, 2016 myectomy. So there's a lot of people here who you've met uh, they were probably unconscious for the majority of the time you spent with them, but that's okay.
1: I hope not. No, I, I hope not. I mean, one of my goals, you know, although we're real busy is to, to I've had the great joy is getting to know a lot of these folks and, and spending time with them and educating them uh, preoperatively. I think many of them might recall. I, uh, today, I pull up the MRI. I try to show them anatomically on the MRI, what we're going to do, what it means, why we're doing it. Um, so I, I hope, I hope they recall that I was present more than just when they were
0: a comment. I was being a, a wise guy here, but, uh, no, they, they all have wonderful things to say. Um, so let me pivot to the next question. Cause I want to be cognitive of the time here. Um, uh, my son had an echo when he was 16 and showed no signs of HCM. But now he's 35 and he has hokum with mitral regurgitation and Sam. Could you guys kind of talk about the evolution of obstruction that you can be non obstructed at one point and maybe not even be HCM positive until you're 20, 25 and then you develop a big gradient, which I see typically kind of pops around 40 ish when that gradient seems to get a little bit worse and they become more symptomatic. So should people just not get their family screened until they're complaining, or should they screen early and know what's happening so that they can keep an eye on it? Who wants Yeah,
1: I would screen early. Um, this is what is so remarkably fascinating about the disease and the disorder is um, we we have an incomplete understanding of of how this all evolves and One really interesting case I had was a gentleman who in his 40s was symptomatic, was gene positive, I did a myectomy. His son was tested. He is gene positive. He is 17 or 18 at the time, profoundly symptomatic, has outflow tract obstruction, and has absolutely no hypertrophy. Yeah. So put that together. All right. So he's got the gene. He's got outflow tract obstruction, but he's got no hypertrophy. Dad, you know, so then you start to ask, what's the chicken or the egg? Do you need the hypertrophy to get the obstruction? Can, does the gene somehow influence how the mitral valve develops in utero? And that leads to obstruction that leads to hypertrophy. So there's there's a whole whole host of unanswered questions in my mind at how it's all connected. But to answer the the, the question, you know, with, with a known family history, then genetic testing is helpful to identify patients at risk, not completely, but partially. And then the echocardiograms at a good hypertrophic cardiomyopathy center, knowing what they're looking for, should be obtained as a baseline and any time any symptomatic change occurs to help make sure there isn't progression of the hypertrophy
2: or outflow tract obstruction without hypertrophy. Yeah, I would just add the importance of provocation uh, being that, that those initial studies, especially when there's uh, questionable anatomy or questionable diagnosis, that it's not just a standard screen, screening echo, that this is a, a dedicated study and it has to include uh, trying to provoke a gradient because especially patients who are symptomatic with exercise, You know, may not have a resting gradient to speak of, and, and we don't want to miss the opportunity to detect that phase of the disease.
0: I will add that many patients have a habit of studying for a test. And by this, I mean, they are going for a stress echo the next day. They know it's coming. They rest up. They drink a lot of water and they follow all the rules just so that they're prepared for the test. And that's about the worst thing that they could possibly do. Be normal. If you're not a good water drinker, it. it's you. <laughs> if you're cheating and you're trying to make yourself the best you can be and you're well-rested and you took your meds exactly at the right time and you drank a lot of fluid, you're not going to provoke that gradient. If you're a little dehydrated, maybe you did have a little bit of a meal beforehand so that fluid is... and that blood flow is in your gut rather than in your heart, you're going to provoke those gradients more. So if you think you have obstruction and your symptoms are related to obstruction, really, please don't do yourself a disservice by studying for the test. Cram for this one, you know, at the last second and show up and just see what happens. That's the real you on a normal day, not the best you on a perfect day. So you, you almost want to be your worst you when they're being evaluated for this, not your best you. Additionally, um, I wanted to talk about the imaging beforehand. Um, I I have the uh, pleasure of getting those first echoes that come from the community. And they say things like moderate, mild, severe, hypertrophy, possible LVOT gradient over 50. And there's no data there. And the, the analysis has been done very, generically, not in an HCM specific protocol for imaging. Um, I think it's critically important to have your imaging done at your center of excellence so that they have a good protocol, not only for echo and stress echo, but for MRI. Um, sorry to the hometown docs, do the, do the halter monitors hometown docs, um, manage those meds, um, do that work, but leave the imaging to the high volume programs. In my opinion, would you guys agree, disagree?
2: Yeah, there's a huge difference in the imaging we get. You know, we can get echoes that have 10 or 15 uh, sets of images, none of which are really the right um, window to see what we need to see in terms of the relationship of the valve and the septum and the outflow tract, you know, never mind that many of them are only resting images and definitely the same with MRI. I mean, I've, I've seen a couple of MRIs that were study for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy where it's really an aortic study. I mean, it's whatever protocol they use is showing us lots of ascending aorta and almost no heart. So absolutely critical that those are done well and that there's good communication between the team members. I mean, I think that a center that runs well that takes care of a disease like this, the cardiologists and the surgeons are talking a lot and it's a two-way dialogue. Hey, this is what I'm thinking. Can we make sure we, we have a sense of what's going on here? That's absolutely critical.
0: Couldn't agree more if anybody has any other questions now would be the time to post them i'm going to ask some really critical questions and then i wrap up with some messages so um nick we know your guilty pleasure of choice or peanut m and but what is doug's guilty pleasure
2: <laughs> salty food for me salty yeah. yeah it's uh i love i love salty stuff um so I, I wouldn't say no to peanut M&M's, but uh, I'm more of a savory kind of guy.
0: A savory guy, okay.
2: Well, I was, gonna, to... I was gonna say he, he likes a good scotch. Well, I would never say no to that as well, but hard to, hard to sample that in the office. <laughs> <Don't
0: sample it. laughs> that,
2: that's more of a weekend uh, a weekend thing.
0: Endeavor, that, that's great. Okay, so as they're populating these last few questions, and I'm sure...
1: Hey, Lisa, can I ask a question? Sure. Well, it's not asking a question. I, want, you know, I was thinking about Doug and we, we've talked a lot about his interest. I wanted to have him just give a brief uh, uh, sort of synopsis of this other area of research. Doug, Doug oversees our, our training program, but he, he's had this interest, which, and, and he kindly has involved me with some of the activity and looking at what we call high-performance individuals and how teams and individuals perform under stress. And he's, he's had relationships with a, with a lot of really high performers, including the Navy SEALs. But, Doug, why, why don't you share some of that, what you've been looking at, how and how it relates to training in the operating room.
2: Yeah, I mean, this has been uh, a fascinating journey for me. You know, we, we all learned as surgeons basically by being at the bedside and hanging out and hoping that people obtained enough by osmosis to become really good at what they do but we haven't really looked into what makes somebody who is an olympian or an nba player or a you know a, a blue angel pilot in the top 0.1% of what they do so we've really started to look at all these things like stress and sleep and um focus in the operating room, situational awareness, these kind of things, and how we can train our residents to utilize these tools that haven't traditionally been used in medicine. So we're, you know, we are on this journey now. I won't say we have all the answers to it. We're gathering a lot of data. We look at the physiology actually in the OR of our OR teams. So what's your heart rate doing? What's your uh, attention doing? And the goal is that we, you know, we come to a point where as busy as we all are we can have some degree of focus on how the whole team is functioning, you know, before we get to actually doing what we're doing. So, and then we can understand better what it means to have a truly excellent outcome. Not when we get to, did the patient make it out of the hospital feeling better, but how's the team doing this morning as we start, uh, you know, our our focus on this difficult problem. And uh, it's been great. We've got great collaborators with uh, people all around the country and in various disciplines and, uh, so it's it's an exciting area of trying to make, take medicine into the, drag it into the 21st century kicking and screaming.
0: I'm very happy to hear that because I've always thought it was kind of this bizarre rite of passage to see how exhausted you could make a, a young med student and see if they can still perform. I'm not, I have not always thought that that might be best for patients, but I will tell you a funny thing that I did when I went in for my heart transplant, um, when they, I was in the pre-op area and they're like, okay, we can give you something I, you know, make you a little happy now, Lisa. I'm like, no, I'm staying awake until I get into the OR. And they're like, okay, that people don't do that. I'm like, I'm staying awake because I wanna check out the people that are in there. And I wanna know if they're awake. And I wanna see if everybody ate their breakfast and had a good night of sleep and is in a good mood and is playing good songs and doesn't play Blue Oyster Cult, don't fear the reaper. And I, so I went into the OR wide awake and they're like, what are you doing?" And I'm like, I just want to make sure you're all good. And I did my check-in with my team and they're like, you need to go to sleep now. We have work to do. I said, okay, I'm out of here. But I do think it's critically important. You know, we, we think, all oh, patient, patient, patient. You guys are a cohesive team and teams work well together. And if a piece of the team isn't working, the patient's not going to get the best out of the team. So I think that is absolutely outstanding. And please do keep us in touch with your results and what you're finding. And maybe we can, you know, create a little symposium for other center excellence partners to hear what you're doing and, and to have them bring some of these practices as you develop them into their programs. We are a community and yes, you know, every center has their own identity and their own way of doing things. It's critical that we're all a community. There are other great surgeons in the country. We love our surgeons and we want to promote them and we want to make sure that they evolve in their skills and their ability and that we're sharing best practices across institutions. I know sometimes it's a little bit difficult, but we really need to make sure we're all on the same page because patients come to you from all over the place. They shouldn't have to travel quite as far as they're traveling right now. So the more we can train and give them high volume experience, the better we'll all be. So I'm really excited about um, some of the things we have coming up. We have 16 programs in the pathway right now to be recognized. That will bring us to, by the end of next year, 60 programs. 25 years ago when I met this guy named Harry, uh, Mayo or Cleveland Clinic was doing 22 myectomies a year, I think the number was. And now you're 222 or thereabouts. We don't count 2020, we're just putting a pin in that one. That one doesn't count, it's got a little asterisk by it. Um, But these numbers are gonna grow. HCM is not one in 500. It's probably one in 250, one in 300. And there's probably a lot of people who would benefit from meeting a surgeon and getting their anatomy corrected. And for whatever reason, I still don't fully understand. People have been remiss to get to surgery faster because they wanted to wait until they were sick enough. We don't do that with other procedures. We don't make people get sick enough before we offer them a treatment. We treat them because the anatomy's wrong. The anatomy is not doing what it was intended to do. And Nick, to your point earlier, is the mitral valve abnormal because of something in the genetic code that made the myocardium abnormal? I say absolutely yes. The atria is not normal either. None of the cardiac apparatus is fine. It all started with the same first cell that went off and said, I'm gonna go be the heart now. And the programming was wrong. So there's some really amazing stuff coming. I have one last question and comment from the community. Joe wants to know if there are any new techniques or approaches to myectomy. So what do we think about robotics, minimally invasive? Are we there yet? Will it work?
1: Well, I, I, I'll share it with Doug, you know, I've struggled with the minimally invasive because some of the maneuvers I've had to do, but that's where the collaboration with Doug and innovation, we may, once I see and work with him, we may come up with ways to make the incision smaller. And my, my key focus for not pushing that too hard is I've, I, I've wanted to be the safest operation possible. So I've always focused on, on safety, the low pacemaker rate and so forth. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't continually innovate. Um, we've, we've done a couple robotic operations in folks that have had to, to have mitral valve operations because that's where our expertise is in mitral valves. It's doable, it's longer, it's more complex and challenging than doing it in the standard fashion but every operation when we start down this path that is innovative is longer and more complex and it's the iterative process and the ingenuity that drives these changes that 10 years from now we'll look back and say wow look at where
2: we've come Doug your your sense on uh, on those things yeah I think the the thing is that the Instrumentation for minimally invasive surgery has evolved a lot slower than our interest in doing minimally invasive surgery. So, the the key thing, um, you know, that that is difficult about these operations is that it's not the aortic valve. It's not uh, something that is re- in a relatively static position. We can move it a little bit, but then we can just work on it. We have to be able to see so many different aspects of the muscle, and and that's where moving the the ventricle around moving the heart around and making that visualization possible is is necessary and it's a lot of maneuvers sometimes to see the whole septum well to do it. and so we have to evolve our tool sets to be able to do that without pushing on the heart directly uh, to do it through a really small incision that's one of the challenges of any minimally invasive approach for this uh, i think that we'll get there uh, but as nick said we don't want to get there and have it be a four-hour operation um, you know, with a heart stop for a really long time because that's just not right for for outcomes. And we don't want to get there and have an inadequate resection. So, so we have to get our all of our tool sets, our imaging, our ability to do intraoperative imaging in real time, all that stuff needs to get better to be able to get there. So, so not to say we're not thinking about it and working on it, but I think to make it routine and maintain the safety has got to be our goal. So, I've been a
0: little cautious and concerned about a few people around the country trying to do robotic myectomy, selling it as if it has ever been truly compared to a traditional myectomy. Uh, Are either of you aware of any publications, any head-to-head trials comparing robotic myectomy or the attempt of a robotic myectomy to traditional surgery? No. We have the proof we really can't Measure
1: well. we for mitral valve work that it's it's been compared and it's safe uh, and comparable. Uh, I always look at. I think the barometer that I look at is ask any person doing a myectomy if they needed to have a myectomy would they have it done robotically? That would to me would be the, bar- the barometer. I, I I could probably put quite a bit of money on what the answer would be.
0: So I've seen the results of some of them. I'm not encouraged. OK, yeah. there was a little problem with my Facebook feed, and I wasn't getting any questions. But then I hit reset, and they're there. Um, Scott, I'm going to ask your question in a slightly different format. Um, if somebody is diagnosed with aortic stenosis, but they're gene positive, no sign of hypertrophy, I think Nick kind of top commented on this already, Is which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Does the heart beat wrong because it's thick, or is it thick because it beats wrong? Do we know?
1: But this, this maybe for Doug, the person has aortic stenosis. Is that what?
2: The, yeah? yeah. Yeah. I think if there's stenosis, if there's stenosis and they're gene positive, it may be the chicken and the egg. These are two different things going on at the same time. Because it's, if it's the valve. Um and a gene positive hypertrophy those are those are two different heart issues that coexist and both need to be managed together yeah and we see that i mean you can get hypertrophy of the heart from aortic stenosis that can be really severe in a patient who doesn't have the you know the gene positive uh, type of ventricular hypertrophy that can be that can cause all kinds of problems that are Uh, sometimes equivalent physiology, but it doesn't behave quite the same. And and the natural history is not the same. You usually have to have longstanding uncorrected AS to get that kind of severe hypertrophy. And it's usually the whole heart. It's not the septum.
0: For a records review or virtual visit, is there a, there's a link on your page uh, on the Facebook page, or I'm sorry, the um, website for the Cleveland Clinic for surgical referrals for self referrals and that's how they would process that
1: yes there should be on our hypertrophic cardiomyopathy but if not um they can always call my office or call doug's office i, I can give you the the number
0: it's on your directory listing at 4hcm.org they can,
1: they can- okay so there there you go doug or i would be happy to
2: review any case yeah, it's very easy to reach out and, and either of our assistants will actually help gather the records together and, and make that process easy. So, you know, it, we can always have a conversation, but when we have the images to look at, it's it's a it's a deeper conversation. And we'll make that as simple as possible to do in advance.
0: It's gotten a lot easier. You don't have to ship videotapes across the country or CDs. These are all electronic records for the most part that can be transferred. So um, a couple fun questions. Can you do a myectomy through a cardiac catheterization?
2: Not a myectomy, um, but, you know, septal ablation is the procedure that's done through a catheter, which, um, you know, I think there was a lot of enthusiasm that that might be the the sort of holy grail, but, uh, you know, at least you have plenty of experience with patients who've who've had their challenges with that. And I I think, you know, it's one of those things where there's always a balance between invasiveness and outcome, and in uh, you know, for the majority of patients, the real question here is what's going to give the best durable result. You know, where can we get the physiology really corrected? And and for a lot of patients, it's not the catheter.
0: For some reason, it's still this almost a, a little bit of an argument in some cases where patients say, "No, I had I had this, so that's the right answer," and somebody else says, "Well, I had this, and that's the right answer." Your right answer isn't their right answer. Your anatomy is your anatomy. Their anatomy is their anatomy. And I think you're probably talking about the majority of anatomies in HCM are well served by myectomy. The minority are served by alcohol ablation if need be. Um, and that's 25 years, 15,000 families. I don't even know how many referrals we've made, but the majority do better with myectomy. It's proven out in the statistics and in the results, but we'll get there. Um, it keeps evolving. The last question before my announcements are, what are the side effects of a myectomy? What is brain fog or pump head? Does it happen? Is it common? How do you avoid it?
1: Well, I'll go real quick. I don't know if Doug has seen Um you know, it's been a real challenge to figure out what if and if brain fog is real, um, and if it is at all related to the heart, being on the heart lung machine. Um, you know, for a while there were some some studies that suggested that it did occur and it was lingering, um, uh, fog, depression up for six months or more, but then there were other studies that that looked at patients that had time on the heart-lung machine for heart operations and compared them to patients that had other major operations, whether it be um, thoracic lung surgery or vascular surgery, where they weren't on a pump. And the incidence of these events was exactly the same, suggesting that it either was the stress of surgery, the anesthetic or unmasking otherwise unrecognized issues that occur after any major psychological, physiologic trauma. Um, there, you can, there is a small risk of any heart surgery of having a stroke for myectomy It's well, well under 1%. Um, but Doug, what's your, what's your current read on brain fog, brain injury
2: after standard cardiac surgery? Uh, I think number one, it was a real issue in the, in the 70s. I mean, when pumps were different and there were bubbles and all kinds of stuff that we don't deal with now. Um, and, and some of the literature dates back to that. So it's, you know, I think that term, you know, is from a very old, much older technology. Uh, number two is there's a big difference between the average patient having myectomy and a patient in their late 70s with severe atherosclerosis having a coronary bypass. And even in that population, the study that Nick was alluding to, they compared off-pump cabbage, on-pump cabbage and uh, other major surgery, which showed no difference in the incidence of cognitive dysfunction or brain fog. I I do think that the issue of depression is a real one, but I think it's more related to having what's perceived as this terrible life-threatening operation. And I tell, you know, a lot of my patients ask questions about depression. What I tell them is, there's a small body of literature, which suggests that the faster you get back to normal activity after surgery, the less the incidence and the better you do. So part of the response to that is, is encouraging patients that this surgery is the first step to feeling better. It's not a, it's not a, uh, an event to be dreaded, but something that should be, um, the first step in the rest of your life. And that the sooner you can get back to the things you normally do, the better. I mean, obviously you're not gonna pick up a heavy piece of furniture the day after surgery, but you can drive early, you can be active very early after surgery, and and those things, rather than thinking about this as sort of a permanent impairment, really give people a jump start on their on their mental state after the operation.
0: So one thing we've been doing here at the HCMA for many years, and then we've changed it for technology purposes, um, is members used to get a pre myectomy call and I would walk them through this is what's going to happen. I actually stood in the surgery suite with Nick. I saw this whole thing. This is what's happening to you. This is how you prepare physically. This is how you prepare mentally. This is how you recover and we would go through it. We've evolved that to a once a month pre myectomy discussion group where we'll walk you through the whole thing. We have discussion groups for the post myectomy experience. Uh, uh, Paul was on here earlier. He was one of your prior myectomies. And he um, runs a, a support group discussing myectomy, making the decision. So we have all of these peer support mechanisms now that are available to anybody who's thinking about a myectomy. They can sign up at 4HCM.org. There's a a registry or events calendar, and you can meet the support group leaders. I will tell you that the HCMA website is going to be completely overhauled, and it looks amazing. It should be ready in a couple of weeks. We know that the old site's a little bit wonky and hard to navigate. So wait until you see what we've got coming for you next, because it looks amazing. It'll be easier to find these opportunities. Um, Gentlemen, is there anything you'd like to say before I do some announcements?
2: I just really appreciate the chance to speak with the community and, and just wanted to thank you, Lisa, for all your work over a, a really long period of time, the dedication it takes to get the society to this point. It really is, uh, it's amazing.
0: Thank you, but that made me feel old.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Unintentional. Okay. No, thanks everybody.
1: I, I, to Doug for being a, a great partner, Lisa for our, our the time we've spent together and all you've done for the community and really the heroes and heroines are the, our patients, um, and all those, I can't see y'all, but I, I hope you're all doing really well after the surgery, or if you're coming in, uh, we would be excited and to take care of you. So, um, yeah, this has been a great opportunity.
0: Well, we really appreciate that. I do have to make a couple of really important announcements. And some of these are very, very specific announcements. On May 15th, the HCMA is going to be holding an open house here in my messy office in New Jersey. Um, I will clean it by then, I promise. The purpose of this open house is twofold. Number one, you get a chance to meet some of your big hearted friends and, and get a little bit of peer support. But we're going to be doing some videotaping for the new website. And we want to have the patient's experience from their own voice. So you'll come up here to the office, we'll put you on a camera and you'll tell us a little bit about experiences. We'll give you a little training. They're gonna be short videos, but we think it's really important when patients are lost in the middle of the night and they're scrolling through the internet, that they see faces of people that they can relate to who are also going through their same diagnosis, the same journey, the same therapies, the same lifestyle issues. So if you are in the Northern New Jersey area, if you are in New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and you wanna take a drive down, we're gonna be here from 1030 to four. I'm buying lunch. I'm buying coffee for breakfast, decaf is available. Um, We're gonna have a tent out on the street uh, in front of the cafe across the street, and that'll be the registration area. So it will be COVID friendly. The staff is vaccinated, it's going to be very safe, and it's a good opportunity to get the heck out of the house and do something different with human beings in person. So um, if you want to participate in that, there's a survey um, that we'll be putting back up online uh, on the Facebook page. It's on there already, but I'll pop it up to the top of the page. Take the survey, let us know your HCM experience so we can identify which segments we're gonna have you talk about. That's announcement number one. Announcement number two actually has a bit to do with myectomies, but it's about Mavicamptin, which is potentially an alternative in the future, maybe for some people who might be facing myectomy. The HCMA is partnering with a group called ICER. We did a a little segment last night um, or two nights ago on the private group explaining the process. There is an online survey that they want you to take so that they can understand the HCM patient journey. We are going to be helping do this assessment with them. And this assessment is a little different than most. This is the economic impact of this particular therapeutic agent and what the estimated price should be. We have a one-time opportunity to have our voices heard on the pricing of a brand new drug to market. It is really important that the community speaks up. The survey is open only until tomorrow night. So you need to get out there and fill it out if you haven't done so already. There will be other opportunities to interact with the process, but right now getting those comments in is critically important. That the links are available on this page. And if you have any problem getting them, please contact the office and we will be more than happy to put you in touch with that. My last call out is an incredibly specific one. We have a partner who is looking to do an educational um, patient experience video for myosin-binding protein C mutation patients. We have a number of them in the office who've already uh, said that they're interested in participating in this project, but we are truly trying to be as diverse as possible. And we would really like to find an African-American, Latino, or Asian family with a myosin-binding protein C mutation who would agree to speak about their HCM experience and their myosin-binding protein C mutation for one of our partners who is working on a specific therapy for myosin-binding protein C. I can't say a lot more about it right now, but be more than happy to talk to you about that offline. If you have myosin-binding protein C and you are from a community of color, we would really like to talk to you. Critically important that we we show the diverse faces of HCM. So that's my three announcements. I told you about the premyectomy support groups. Doug, welcome to the HCM team. I promise I won't call you and annoy you too much, but when I do, I need to talk to you.
2: We'll look forward to it.
0: And I have to be honest about my, I probably should have done the disclosure up front. Um, I never had a myectomy, but Nick did operate on my dad. And I remember that phone call from the OR when Nick said, okay, got a pen. We did a lot. And my dad didn't have a myectomy. He was mitral valve replacement. Let's see if I can do this, Nick. Mitral valve replacement, tricuspid valve repair, right sided maze, left sided maze, right atrial reduction, left atrial reduction, and a cabbage. You got it. That was my daddy. You did all that in two hours, two and a half, I think. It was a long day. It was a long day. He did, he did uh, somebody's angry. He was angry. <laughs> Somebody just sent angry things out. So I appreciate what you did for my dad. And I'm sitting oh under his uh, fireman's helmet that hangs on my wall. So uh, gave him some good, good quality of life for for the end there. And I thank you for that.
1: Oh, you're welcome.
0: We have taken enough time from these guys tonight. We're going to send them off to uh, have a lovely evening with their puppies and maybe some scotch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so they can do what they want. Gentlemen, thank you so much. And to all who are doing, thank you so much. This will be available on YouTube and in our podcast shortly. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4hcm.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at 4HCM Warriors. That's the number 4HCM Warriors. Follow us on Twitter at 4HCM.org. For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. To contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973 983 7429. You can email us at support at 4HCM.org or visit us online at our website 4HCM.org and send us an email from there. The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time. We would like to thank our sponsors, Myocardia, Invite, Boston Scientific, and Cytokinetics for their support of this program. The HCMA is partnering with Myocardia, 23andMe, and others to help learn more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Learn more about these initiatives at 4HCM.org. Invitae, a genetic testing company and a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, is proud to provide free genetic testing to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Please learn more at 4HCM.org. Hey, we know life with HCM can be challenging. And support is critical. That's why the HCMA has created an online support group system to help you and your loved ones live better with HCM. Join us. The HCMA is seeking volunteers on a number of different projects including our online support group system, our peer-to-peer, big-hearted friend system, and our legislative subcommittee. Please visit 4HCM.org to learn more today.